This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. In this episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing a winemaker for one of Napa Valley's most storied estates. Dan Petrosky was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and attended Columbia University, where he played football. Then he earned an MBA from NYU. But in 2006, he traded New York City for Napa Dirt. And in 2012, he became the head winemaker at Lark Mead Vineyards. And in 2017, he was honored as the San Francisco Chronicles Winemaker of the Year. What a story. Dan, thank you so much for being here. I am really curious. How do you go from New York City? You you went to Columbia. That's pretty cool. Then you get your MBA at NYU. Pretty cool. And then in 2017, your Winemaker of the Year. Take me through your journey. Oh, well, thank you, Scott, for the introduction. Um, and thank you for having me here. I truly appreciate it. I, How did I get into wine? Well, wine, it was funny. If you if we backtrack to Columbia University, and you mentioned my the reference as a football player, one of the things that was pivotal in my life was playing football for Columbia and trying to turn that football program around with a group of guys that uh, were recruited to do so in my freshman year. And uh, we all got, we were very excited about it, and we decided it was, you know, our our motivation and our mission to turn the program around. We lost our first opening game to Harvard, and a group of us went to the local uh, Chinese restaurant where it was the, you know, six seven dollar beef and broccoli and all the drink, all you can drink white wine. And I got so drunk that night as an eighteen year old. Um, a Chinese restaurant on, white wine. A Chinese restaurant white wine that I couldn't smell wine for probably about four to six years without getting nauseous. So wine has always been my uh, tequila moment in college. It's funny because my tequila moment is actually tequila. <laughs> <laughs> and I've had one of those too, so I'm not going to sell myself short. But I, um, so yeah, so wine, wine really became a pivotal part of my life there later on when I started to work in the magazine publishing industry at Sports Illustrated and Time Magazine, especially at Time, as I became uh, a little older into my late 20s. And I had clients in the industry from advertising, sales, and marketing that we were dining out in New York City. So wine became a really important part of the restaurant scene. And um, I had the good fortune of, you know, having a a, a, a corporate card uh, in my pocket. So always helpful. Always helpful when you're eating in uh, fine dining restaurants in New York. But it was also an era when wine was actually a, a little bit more price sensitive and, and approachable on, on, on the pocketbook. So I was very lucky to to kind of like go out and, and eat and drink a lot. And, and it, was, it was part of my own personal kind of uh, journey was to kind of learn a little bit more about what we were drinking. Um, it was very important for everyone to understand where they were eating, why they were eating. But the drinking side of it was just beverage. And uh, I, wanted, I knew there was something more behind it. And I got fascinated by the stories uh, behind the great estates of Napa Valley or Bordeaux or Burgundy, Italy itself. So for me, it was, uh, it was really about the storytelling and uh, the romance and the history and the legacy of these great estates that were you know, scattered around on restaurant wine lists and great retail shops in New York and then in some of the books I was able to pick up. Well, Dan, you and I have had a very similar background then because I'm very into that same kind of culture, but I'm not a winemaker. <laughs> I mean, there's a difference between really wanting to learn about the food and wine culture and the pairings and where these wines are coming from and their background. And But it, it's a completely different path to going out to California. And I, I don't want to gush too much because I am actually so excited that you're here. But you, you are the winemaker at one of the most famous wineries in Napa Valley. That just doesn't happen from 
you know, perusing a restaurant's wine list. The, what what happened? There was a pivotal moment somewhere for sure. Um, and I still I'm, I'm very lucky to be uh, one of the of the winemaker, the current winemaker at one of the most famous wineries in Napa Valley. I don't ever look at myself that way, and um, and and I still feel like there's a lot of work to do in my education and my evolution as a winemaker, and to help bring Larkme to even higher standards and higher esteem because I think we have this an incredible vineyard site. But um, we'll get to that in a minute. But to answer your question, when I was in publishing, I worked in, you know, almost all facets of the of the industry from the editorial side of Sports Illustrated to consumer marketing, sales, finance, advertising. So I had this big picture view of how magazines worked and I felt comfortable about it. And but when I translated that to one of my hobbies, one of my passions which became wine over time it was, I didn't know anything how wine was made. I can tell you the great histories of, of Napa Valley and, and, and Bordeaux, but I couldn't tell you actually how wine was made. So every time someone handed me a restaurant wine list in, in New York City, I felt a little bit like um, an amateur and a novice and, and, and a fake because I didn't really know how wine was made. So when it came a point, a pivotal point in my life when I had the opportunity to, to make a crossroads decision about leaving Time Inc. and possibly going to work at the Wall Street Journal. Um, I took a, a, a road not taken. I actually, at 33 years of age, I, I, picked, I packed up and moved to Italy and uh, lived in uh, Sicily for a year working with a family that owned a vineyard because I said, if I'm going to... what? <laughs> yeah. So it was, um, I was very fortunate at the time. I had, um, whether you consider this fortunate or not, but I didn't have any uh, family relationships. I wasn't married. I didn't have any children. So I had a, a, the freedom to make a midlife crisis decision uh, as a single uh, male in the city. Yeah. So I lived in, I lived in, a, in a great town on the eastern seaboard of uh, Sicily and worked with a family that owned a winery called Vada della Cate and spent a couple of days a week, about three days a week, visiting vineyards um, with them, working in the vineyards and translating, you know, the Sicilian dialect into Italian, into English, into what the hell was going on. So I actually never say that I learned how to make wine in Italy. I just learned how to appreciate wine. So my return to the States, I, I wanted to find a job in New York City in the wine sales and marketing side. However, I wasn't too familiar with what jobs were available outside of the kind of, um, you know, hit the bricks sales day-to-day job when you're when you're presenting wine to restaurants and retail. So I didn't really understand that there were, you know, bigger marketing jobs, um, brand management jobs, relationship jobs as a, you know, kind of, um, you know, the, the Italian brand manager for a wine portfolio importer. I didn't realize those existed. So I ended up in California working at Dumal in 2006 uh, with Andy Smith. And uh, oh, sure, yeah. part of the, the relationship yeah. with Andy was he was the um, – winemaker at Larkmead, consulting winemaker at Larkmead, and the winemaker owner at Dumal. So he asked me to split my time, you know, a little bit in Larkmead during the 06 vintage and a lot at Dumal. So I did six days and one day or five days and two days, depending on uh, the, the busyness of the, the harvest season. And I remember vividly the day he called me into into the, the office at the winery at Dumal and said, hey, I want to hire you. And I said, for what? And he's like, to be the cellar master at Larkmead. I said, "Why? I don't know how to make wine." Um, he said, "We'll teach you." So that you was gotta be that was the, come on. This just doesn't happen. It it was I. It was the right time, the right place, the right relationship, um, the right work ethic. I think that is really important, especially at a, in a period of time where it's as intense as harvest is, where it's um, you know you're going seven days a week. I mean, I've I typically you know go eighty days in a row during harvest, and today. 
you know, my job will be, you know, 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. So I will, you know, you do that for 80 straight days. You better have a work ethic. And that's where I kind of put a little bit my my kind of, you know, preseason football training to play. It's at around the same time of the year, that August, September, so before right. the season gets started. So I'm used to that in my life, doing that for eight years through high school and college. So I'm used to that kind of uh, that mentality, and it's mind over matter a lot of times, but it also helps me lose a few pounds too. Wow. So you literally, I don't want to say, stumble is not the right word, but it, when you were at Dumont and Andy – was having you work what in in the vineyards themselves, or, or were you actually working in the cellar? Were you a cellar rat? It was a it was a harvest internship, which um, most of my time in August was spent in the vineyard, and then the majority of the time in September and October was in the winery at the Custom Crush facility that they made Dumont in in, in for a, a long stretch of time between the mid aughts. Okay, so he clearly saw something in you, and you became cellar master at Larkmead, and then. How did you learn how to make wine? Pure curiosity. Andy saw work ethic and he saw maturity. I was an older uh, at the time than most interns. Most interns were, you know, post-Davis grads or or post-college um, grads in their early 20s. I was in my early 30s, so I had um, a vision of what I liked in wine from a wine-drinking perspective. So I had a curiosity and work ethic to put behind it to learn a little bit more about it. And I carry that over to the first day of work at Larkmead where my life was really about, I was there by myself for close to 10 years, so my life was really about trying to understand why things taste the way they taste and then hopefully backtrack and dissect into them. So tasting, you know, I had good fortune having two vintages in barrel, having multiple vintages in bottle. So when I was able to taste on an ongoing basis and write notes and kind of like look at the trends of what my tasting notes said, as a wine was developing in barrel, it was I was able to taste and train myself from a palate perspective. <clears throat> I still don't know how wine is made from a chemical <laughs> perspective. Um, that whole science of wine is something that has eluded me. I know enough to, to, to be dangerous, but it's really, you know, it's about what I'm trying to achieve from a taste perspective. That And I always say this, that wine is, the wines that lark meat over the last few years as I've had the opportunity to make the wines, they're made in my head based on the vision for the estate, based on the history and the legacy, based on what we know the soils and the, and the viticulture tends to be, what we know the climate tends to be. So I can make these wines in my head and in my heart and my palate and try to replicate that, try to be respectful of all the things I believe in lark mead with regards to its potential for greatness. And that's so that's kind of it's still that perspective of this of romancing wine. And that's how I take my 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 job uh, on a day to day basis is like this romantic view of what lark meat is to me and what it should, you know, how it should kind of convey itself in the glass and and work with an incredible vineyard team and an ownership that gives me uh, carte blanche to, to kind of really pursue what I believe the vision of the Larkmead estate is. And that is, that's truly, you know, there's not a better job in the world. So you really just had an extended apprenticeship. Oh, yeah. I mean, you didn't go to Davis. No. And you didn't take biochemistry and all the other things that you would think would be requisite for... Uh, Making wine, you really do just make it with your soul. I'm, and I and I feel like I'm going to wake up at any moment because as a New Yorker, I'm, I was um, I was I'm born to not like California because there's a competition <laughs> there, whether it be from sports or or anything in general. So I you, do, you know I'm from California, right? I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do feel that I do feel like I 
living in California is a bit of a, a dreamlike state. It's a bit of a vacation that hasn't ended. Very cool. Well, all right. So n- enough about you. <laughs> Let's talk about Larkme a little bit because, I, I, you know, for people who haven't been to Napa uh, or may not know Larkme, the winery, it's really, I, I don't know how to say this. It's just like visiting a storybook. Uh, being at Larkmead, it's so wonderful, and the wines are so beautiful. And uh, as a matter of fact, to pregame myself last night, I had a, with friends we had a 2015 Larkmead estate. Like, oh yeah, that's why I love these wines so much. So I'm very excited. And let's talk a little bit about Larkmead and the role it's played in the history of Napa Valley because it's kind of interesting. For sure. When I got hired full time, I was hired by Andy and then met the owner very quickly thereafter. And he, Cam Baker, said to me, hey, you worked at uh, Time Magazine. I want you to be the historian of Larkmead. I want you to kind of write a chronology for me. And the, the, the Solari Baker family was just transitioning until, you know, they were 10 years into making wine again, starting in 1995. They had just built a winery in, in uh, the new modern Larkmead winery in 2005. Um, and Cam was transitioning his career as a, as a, a lawyer in San Francisco to um, an estate proprietor. So he asked me to create the, you know, the history. So I spent a lot of uh, time in the first year, you know, kind of researching Larkmead. And I was, oh, I, I was, it was right up my alley. All the things that got me interested in wine from the history, the legacy, the, the kind of the fun stories. Um, Larkmead, you know, we're 2020. We are celebrating our 125th anniversary this year as a what? family estate. Wow. And so, you know, the 125 years spans three centuries, and there's not a lot of properties, not a lot of uh, estates in Napa Valley or California wine growing. You have to remember, wine is kind of a modern phenomenon for, you know, it's the second half of the the 20th century kind of phenomenon. So it's uh, to have an estate that's this, you know, kind of old and has experienced, you know, the the wine growing in the 1800s and, and only knowing that through reading about it and the stories it's been a, it's been a phenomenal experience for me it it really achieves the, you know that original romance i have about wine so I, I couldn't ask for a better you know kind of property that fit my personality and if i'm not mistaken Larkmead is up in the Calistoga AVA do i have that that is correct uh, yeah I so recall. we we are in the northern part of Napa Valley and the southern part of uh, Calistoga um, town limits so in the border of St Helena on the valley floor it is um it is a unique site for microclimate. It's a unique site for you know being in in the north in the sense that it expands the whole valley floor. There's three contiguous vineyards, and you know the good thing and the beauty of uh, of visiting Larkmead is that it still has this throwback era, throwback feeling of a place that is 125 years old. It's not the most Calistoga is not the most visited part of the Napa Valley from a tourism perspective. We only get about a third of all the visitors who come through uh, the Napa Valley right. gates. Yeah, most say. people stop, you know, short of St. Helena. Yeah, and yeah. it's um so for so when you come up to Larkmead it's like walking into a bit of a time zone. It really is. So you did this history of Larkmead. Could you just give me some of the highlights over the last 125 years? Do, you, do we have time? <laughs> we don't have time. Um, and, I don't, just, and, and I don't know how to edit myself. So, okay. I'll, I'll, <laughs> so I'll hit the pause button. But just, yeah, a few of the highlights. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of curious. I, I didn't realize it was 125 yeah. years old. I mean, yeah. that's got to be one of the oldest yeah, uh, wine, sure. you know, one of the oldest vineyards, one of the oldest wineries. I mean, I can think of a couple others in Napa, but yeah. wow. 
And, and, the, and the physical Larkmead winery actually dates back a little bit older than that. The 1895 is the founding of the family commercial estate that was owned by the Salmina family until early uh, 1940s and World War II, and then the Solari family purchased in 1948. So those are, you know, those are two Italian Amer- Italian families that um, immigrated to to California and and taken over these, you know, created this you know this legacy of um, of wine growing right. at a singular estate property. But you know, if you date back to 1884 and and Lily Hitchcock Coit, and the reason why of the Coit Tower fame in San Francisco, the reason why Larkmead is called Larkmead is she, in the 1880s, early 1880s, late 1970s, post-Gold Rush, post-Civil um, War, she created a state of her own in Napa Valley, exactly where we are in Calistoga, called Larkmead. And she was a, a wealthy heiress to uh, um, some family money. And so she had uh, she built a train station on her property, which became the Larkmead train station. And then Larkmead Lane was, was created. And then this train station stop was cutting through her property. And then you had – they built a winery, a cooperative winery on the train station stop so that all the car- local grape growers, guys like Jacob Schramm, who was, you know, Schramm's, oh, Schramsburg, yeah. which was uh, just up the hill from Larkmead. So that was incredible, an incredible era of like the start of the wine industry in Napa Valley in the 1800s. So you, you kind of springboard off of there and then you go to the Salmina family and, you know, they made wine through Prohibition. They made wines at the 1915 World's Fair at the um, the Pan Pacific Festival that was held in San Francisco, won multiple awards for that and then made wine through Prohibition where one of the first um, – Certified label approvals, what we call colas, in in 1934 post prohibition. So you know prohibition was ended in in uh, December 33, and and we had uh, approval to sell wine in January 34. So I mean that's pretty um you know pretty monumental at the time, and then you have a transition into this the Solari family, and uh, Bruno Solari, which was uh, who who bought the property with his wife Polly. They were, you know, kind of giants in, in the Napa Valley in the sense that they were, you know, Bruno was Larry Solari, Bruno Larry Solari, they call him. He was uh, the president of United Vintners at the time, owned Bilou, um, oh. and it was just incredible. So he owned Larkmead Estate. He sold grapes to Inglenook. It was, you know, that, that big vision of what was building the Napa Valley wine community during that era was, you know, the states like Larkmead, like England, look like I'm Barringer, sorry, what like years Hulu. were these? That this he... was, you know, from 1948 when he was on the scene, but he was there. That's still pretty ago. early for the California yeah. wine scene. Yeah, yeah. So in the 50s, he was selling grapes to Gallo. Um, and then in the 60s, he was selling grapes to Inglenook. And then as we, you know, as Larkmead wasn't making wine from from the, the greater part of the second half of the, the 1950s on, but we were selling grapes to some of the greatest states, whether it be, you know, the Stag's Leap, um, wine cellars or cake bread and then duck horn. So all the brands that have built the Napa Valley over time that have, have kind of gotten the, the word spread that Napa Valley is a great wine growing region. Larkmead was there to support them with grapes until we decided as a, a family state to start making wine again. And that was what, you know, Cam and Kate Solari in 1995, making that decision to take on the property, replant the vineyards, um, focus on Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot, and also to, you know, make a commercial wine brand. Wow. So then... 1995 is when Larkmead really started back up making wines with their own fruit. And, uh, and but and just out of curiosity, does Larkmead still sell fruit, or are they using all their own? Yeah, we still uh, we still maintain the position of being a, a, a vintner and a grower. So we we make wine as vintners, okay. and we we grow grapes and sell them to other wineries. About fifty fifty. It's been that way over the course of you know, of time. So celebrating 125 years. How are you going to do it? What's the what's the big plan? Are there plans to have 
fifth party that I'm expecting an invitation to. Yeah, no, we're super excited. This is, um, you know, we've been talking, you know, we, we talked about the 120th anniversary about seven or eight years ago. And then, you know, when the 120th anniversary hit, we talked about the 125th and we said, well, well, what are we going to do? And and I think, you know, I've, I've said this before, I said, you know, everyone, everyone has a birthday. Um, everyone has an anniversary. Everyone celebrates. Um, it's not what you've, it's what you've done is great for that moment, for that party. But what are you going to do to continue the legacy? What are you going to do to for the next 125 years? And that's, that's something, you know, Cam Baker and, and I and the management team have thought about for, for a number of years now. And and uh, Cam and Kate decided that it was we're going to make investments to the future. They are they are second generation. They have children and grandchildren, grandchildren who worked harvest for, with me in the winery. So they have a legacy and a family, a generational family um, estate in Napa Valley. And so we started talking about what's the next 125 years look like. You know, that's a it's a far out you know, kind of moonshot, but we wanted to look at the, the the immediate future, the next couple of decades, 20, 30 years. So we look backwards to, to move forwards. And, you know, the big topic right now in everything in, in the world, especially agriculture, is climate change. Right. And, you know, we've been we've been hit with uh, with some major events since, you know, for the last five years, from earthquakes to wildfires to, to floods. So we're thinking about what the next, you know, couple of decades look like based on historical you know, trends and expectations of where climate's going to be going in the Napa Valley. So we're actually diversifying. You know, Larkmead started out with, um, over time, having 28 different grape varieties planted on the property. Currently, we have six. And we are thinking about what the future looks like. So we're actually diversifying our portfolio of what we grow on the property. And we're looking at grapes that are grown in warmer climates. So, you know, Southern Mediterranean, whether it be Spain or Portugal, Southern France, and we're thinking about what our goal, what a, where Napa Valley will be as a great wine growing region 20 or 30 years from now, is Cabernet going and Merlot going to be the varieties that take us forward? They brought us to this place. Right. They've done an amazing job in doing so. Um, but as climate changes, as we have to, you know, predict the future, Wine growing is an agricultural product that takes multiple years to establish itself. So if you're looking 20 years out from now, you want to have quote-unquote old vines that are 20, 30, 40 years old, 20, 30, or 40 years from now. You have to start planting now. Hmm. So if climate's going to change over the course, gradually change over the course of the next two or three decades, we want to grow with it. We want to change with it. So we have, uh, we've invested in a, an experimental vineyard plot um, that is that is about two and a half percent of our, our planted acreage, and we're working with seven different red varieties and a white variety to kind of evolve and develop over time. So I think that investment is you know something that's not only for the fiduciary duty of the property's history and legacy, it's also the duty we have to our ancestors of of the Napa Valley and our peers and our colleagues and our neighbors to think about how do we evolve. Let us make some mistakes for you. If you're not willing to make the, you know, to take the risks right now, we are willing to commit ourselves to, to finding the right, you know, varieties and the right viticulture that's going to work in a changing climate world. Interesting. So you're really trying to get out in front of this, yeah, and I, trying to be predictive in yeah. terms of what you think uh, the varieties are going to be that carries Napa Valley forward. Yeah. No, and this is nothing new. I mean, we have we have this research. It was done by a UC Davis professor called the Winkler Scale, and that was produced in the 40s, and it, and it basically mapped the entire wine-growing world and the temperature zones based on accumulative heat, which is a, a, a number called growing degree days. And it said what grape varieties and what regions, what grape varieties will grow quality grapes in these regions based on uh, weather right. and based on heat. 
because plants from soil to the plant itself to light exposure, certain um, varieties need certain amount of energy in order to ripen to their maximum potential. And so Cabernet Sauvignon doesn't grow well in Northeast Italy, but it grows well in, in Bordeaux, it grows well in Napa Valleys, which is, you know, if you look at the cumulative heat in those regions, it's, a you know, Napa Valley and Bordeaux is closer to Zone 4. And as we think about the change in climate as we move to Zone 5, and these, this was stuff written 70 years ago, um, it's nothing new, and, and but we've been able to watch what was said 70 years ago change in the last 70 years. Yeah. But now we've, you know, our climate conversation has, has drastically kind of accelerated from 1990 to the present day, um, so 30 years, and now we're looking at the next 30 years. So if it's accelerating now, it's hard to slow it down, and everyone, you know, throughout the world, it's not just the wine industry or the agricultural industry, everyone is ma- trying to manage that expectation of what to expect next. You've obviously picked up a thing or two since Time Magazine. <laughs> about winemaking. I'm I'm just, you know, again, it's uh I don't want this dream and this vacation to 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 kind of end, so I'm trying to, you know, kind of evolve and see where the future is. Well, as they say, and the proof is in the pudding. So, it is now time for us to actually try a couple of the wines that you've brought today and I got to tell you right off the bat, I mean, as I said, I I did a pre-game yesterday with the 2015 Larkmead Estate, and I see that you've brought the 2016 as our first wine. 100% Cabernet Sauvignon? Is that? Uh... 2016 is um, about 94, 95% Cabernet with a dash of, of Petit Verdot to go with it to give it a little more darker tones and a little more structure on the, the outer side of the palate. Um, you know, normally I spit, I just went straight for the swallow. That's just, <laughs> no, wow. this is, um, that's just, this is, um, you know, I learned from day one from Andy Smith that, uh, this is our largest production wine. It is a wine that makes it all the way out here to DC, to New York, um, mm. to the Southern California. It is a wine that has the, the, the broadest reach of our brand and it, therefore it needs to be one of our best wines we make. So 2016, I don't think we went wrong, or I don't think Napa Valley went wrong at all in making wine in 2016. Yeah. Yeah. We had a great vintage. It was a, you know, Larkmead being in a very warm part of the valley uh, tends to do better in slightly cooler years. And um, so 2016 was one of those slightly cooler years. So we have wines of great density. We have wines of great structure and freshness, but also wines of uh, good depth and uh, nuance as well. Yeah, this is just absolutely beautiful. I'm getting wonderful notes of black fruit, a little bit of cocoa, a little bit of sort of coffee coming up on that uh, nose. Just are fabulous. But even more impressive is the mouthfeel. I always, you know, people always say, oh, what does the wine taste like? Well, the wine tastes good. (laughs) But I always concentrate first on mouthfeel. And, you know, it's just got this beautiful round finish. And, And, of course, the great characteristics of Cabernet coming through on that blackberry a little bit cassis coming on and that uh, and interesting i'm not getting any green notes at all in this wine you know sometimes you can pick up some tomato leaf in in cabernet i i always kind of look for that touch of vanilla in here too is it how much oak is this in yeah there's getting to the green notes i'd actually like green notes in cabernet it adds to that kind of dimension of freshness um we at larkmead are in a very warm part so our the the green comes from the purines and in, in in the grapes and we actually, because of the warmth that we have, we tend to to kind of um, grow out of the pyrazines very quickly. So it's very rare that you'll see a Larkmead wine yeah. with uh, with green notes. Even in a cool year where the alcohols are a little bit lower and it's a little 
longer to ripen, we still, you know, we'll still burn out any of those green notes. So it's um, it's actually a uh, nuance and, and positive thing in the Napa Valley and, and at the Larkmead Estate. So, but with regards to, yeah, we new oak, we're about 50 to 65, depending on the wine, up to 75% new French oak. Okay. These are these numbers are down from the early days where we were close to 100% new French oak on all of our wines. Um, we've kind of like trying to dial in the oak influence with regards to the wine. You get a lot of you mentioned earlier the the cocoa and uh, um, and I, I see a lot of bittersweet chocolate yes. you know, kind of baker's yeah. chocolate notes and I think you add a little bit of that uh, that oak influence that spice and and candied influence to the wine it, the wine already has it and you know kind of chocolate covered cherries and and kind of morellos and and then you add a little bit of that uh, that beautiful kind of dried herb note which is which is a more delicious green this wine is just yeah really truly complex yeah, and, and I, I like really how the the vanilla notes, the oak notes are subtle. Sure. Sometimes, you know, and with all due respect to your colleagues, some somebody can be, sometimes they're a little heavy handed on the oak and yeah. you can almost, you know, somebody once said that oak, using oak in winemaking is like salt, a little it really enhances right? yeah. and a lot, you know, you can go too far. This is really just pitch perfect. Yeah. Thank really, you. really Thank like you. it. So tell me about the second wine you brought. I'm really excited about this one because I know it by reputation. I've never had the privilege of drinking it. So I'm, I'm pretty excited that you brought a bottle. Yeah. So this is 2016 Dr. Omo. Um, the good thing about Larkmead is we established ourselves as a, as a place of hospitality um, in 2006 when Cam and Kate built the winery in 05, 06. And it gives us the opportunity for you to visit and to sit down with us and learn a little bit about our history. Because as, as we discussed a little earlier, it's a rich history and there's a lot going on. So yeah. we've taken some of the highlights in our in our history and wow. we gave the fanciful name to our wines. And in this particular instance, Dr. Omo references a UC Davis professor who had a, a legacy at Larkman in 1939. He was given the opportunity to plant some ex- experimental vineyard on behalf of UC Davis by the, the previous owners of Salmina family. And that carried through the Solari legacy in the 50s and 60s. And basically, Dr. Romo was, um, was, in 1939 was planting variants and clones of Cabernet Sauvignon. Cabernet Sauvignon wasn't popular in, in Napa Valley until the 90s, right. truly. Yes, of course, there were some amazing Cabernets that were that were pre-prohibition and post-prohibition, but on the wide scale, 50% planted acreage in Napa Valley to Cabernet, that really wasn't, that's a modern phenomenon. So he was actually on the forefront of understanding Cabernet in the 40s um, and 50s, and but it was a very cool story because it was a bit one of those uh, you know very Italian quid pro quo conversations in the sense that uh, Dr. Omo himself was an Italian, the Salminas were Italians, and they said, "Hey, if you're going to plant these Cabernet grapes on our property and learn more about that, we need you to learn a little bit. We want to learn a little bit more about Italian varieties." So he also okay. planted seven Italian varieties. It was the first Sangiovese planted in in, in California um, at the time in 1939. So it was a really fun, exciting time, and and we pay homage to to Dr. Omo because when the grapes for this wine are planted on the footprint that is um, that where Dr. Romo had his experimental vineyard. So it's not, oh. the, not the same vines, um, no, no, but, but it's the same where, plot, the same plot, the same, the same earth. And, oh, that is really cool. And that's the one thing so, I, you know, I, I love that people have to realize that the the, the soils don't change. Right. <laughs> it so, takes millions of years for the soils to change. So the the earth you walk on today, someone else will be um, some alien will be walking on a million years from now well, and it won't change much. Hopefully they'll be making wine. <laughs> um out of this world wine. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that, um that so 100% 100% Cabernet Sauvignon. Cabernet Sauvignon. Yes. Okay. I the only complaint I have about this wine is I need a time machine. 
because I really want to taste it in 10 years. Yeah. It is such a beautiful, but so young compared the the 2016 estate. Absolutely beautiful, ready to drink today, and and probably could could go another ten years, maybe longer. This wine, I feel like I just did infant side. Well, you know, um, these, it's this. so beautiful, but tight and young. I can't imagine. Well, I can't imagine what this wine will really develop into. This is just the structure is amazing. The the tannins are, you know, but at the same time, it's kind of, I would describe this as a iron fist in a velvet glove kind of tannins. And just, I think this is going to just, can, can we just somehow recork that and open it up in 10 years? <laughs> I, think, I think if you have... Uh, what are your feelings about this? I, I'm no, I, I, mean, I mean, I think the, the, the main goal of any winemaker um, when they're thinking about crafting a wine is, can you drink the wine today and will it age forever? I mean, that's the holy grail. And that is something that's very hard to achieve because you, the things that make the wines drinkable today aren't necessarily the things that make the wines age-worthy. So we have to kind of find that, uh, that, that fine line. And I think what, with Larkmead, we have made six red wines, four of them Cabernet-based and um, a Merlot-based blend and a Cabernet Franc-based blend. And so we offer a portfolio of wines that are ready to drink as with regards to the Cabernet Sauvignon and our Merlot-based blends. Yep. And then we make these um, Dr. Romo as part of a reserve portfolio that we consider that's a, a longer age, release wines, older vines, something that you want to put in the cellar you know, and start considering drinking five to ten years down the road. Right. Um, whereas the, the, the younger wines that the younger vines and the Cabernet Sauvignons and the Merlots and the Cabernet Francs, those are our approachable upfront wines, wines that have will have longevity but are delicious in their youth and a little bit more seamless in, in, in their kind of like their foundation. Well, so it makes it a little easier to drink. If you leave that bottle behind, I can guarantee it's going to find a decanter and pretty soon. Great. That's um, a, no, I want really... I want you to experience it over time, so it's, uh, it's all yours. Yeah, we'll come back in 10 years with a 2016. For sure. It's one of my favorite vintages. I I do think that this is a vintage that we are very proud of. Well, Dan, we've come to the end of our interview. I can't thank you enough for being here today. It's just such a treat that that, uh, I have the privilege of doing this and doing it with people like you. I appreciate that. Thank you very much for being here, Dan. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. The wines we tasted today on the podcast were the 2016 Larkmead Vineyards Estate Cabernet and the 2016 Larkmead Vineyards Dr. Omel Cabernet Sauvignon. Follow me on Twitter at The Vine Guy, and don't forget to catch my Wine of the Week segments on Fridays on WTOP and WTOP.com. Sarah Beth Hensley produced this episode. The music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Until the next episode, remember, do good, drink well. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. 
Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 smart bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 special edition smart bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.